Our speaker this morning is Dr. Mark Garcia, who you've met already. He is the president and fellow in Scripture and Theology at Greystone Theological Institute. He is also an associate professor of systematic theology at Westminster Theological Seminary in Glenside, Pennsylvania. Dr. Garcia also previously served as 14 years as a pastor of a church. So we welcome Dr. Garcia as he brings the word to us. Again, it is such a joy to be with you on this Lord's Day morning. And as mentioned earlier, to come with you, alongside you, under the life-giving authority of the living word of God. Shall we turn together in God's word to the New Testament epistle of Paul to the Philippians and to chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, to read verses 25 to 30. Philippians chapter 2, verses 25 to 30. Philippians, one of Paul's letters in your New Testament tucked in between what we call Ephesians and what we call Colossians. Philippians chapter 2, 25 to 30. And now, friends, let us hear these words for what they truly are, not merely the words of any man, but the word of the living God. Let us hear him. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is your word, and we are your people. And in your word, you have taught us that you have given your word precisely to bring about your glory among your people. We ask then simply that you would accomplish that very thing among us that we might be fully and truly receptive to your word in every way, and that by your great grace we would metabolize this food from heaven in faith, in hope, and in love, which brings your name great praise, which we ask for in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2, 25 to 30. In these few words were given something of a snapshot of a moment 
in what is, I think, among the most striking and dramatic events recounted for us in the world of the New Testament. Doesn't quite sound like that, does it? Sounds rather mundane. Sounds like Paul is simply expressing niceties to the Philippians and telling them some uh, positives about a man whom they know and he knows, Epaphroditus. And saying simply, this is what happened to the man. Make sure when he shows up that you welcome him properly. But in fact, the more we understand what is in fact going on in these few words tucked away in chapter 2 of Philippians, the more I think we will discover of the beauty and riches and the power of the gospel at work among God's people. Well, what's going on here then? Well, to understand that, we have to to reconstruct the events somewhat that led to these words in Philippians 2. Perhaps you know these basic truths from the life of the Apostle Paul, and you'll be able to drop them right into place in the story of Paul's relationship to the Philippians. Or maybe you'll be learning them for the first time today. But imagine, if you will, A.D. 51. When Paul, in obedience to a vision, makes the monumental decision, the momentous decision of leaving the Middle Eastern setting of Asia Minor. And with Silas, and with Timothy, and with Luke, he sets sail for what we now call Europe. His first stop on his journey was a Roman colony named Philippi a city of considerable importance in the ancient world. There, he meets a group of faithful Jewish women. He proclaims the Christian gospel and finds among them a receptive audience and establishes, as a result, his first ever Christian congregation in all of Europe. This story is told in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 to 15. Well, young Timothy appears to have played a significant role in this work, and so a natural bond was created between him, between Timothy, and these Philippians. Among the very first believers who struggled along with Paul in his ministry, his costly, demanding, yet urgent ministry, were in fact several women, Lydia, Yodia, and Syntyche, along with an important figure named Clement and other laborers who are connected to this very congregation. Well, Paul's experiences in this city, Philippi, were not all pleasant. They included conflict and eventually imprisonment. But we learn in Acts 16 and also here in Philippians 2 and 4 that even while he was imprisoned in Philippi, his jailer was wonderfully converted and presumably joined this very same Philippian congregation. Well, having been asked by the authorities in Philippi to get out of town, Paul left Luke in charge of the congregation and headed west toward Thessalonica, or Thessalonike. During three weeks of difficult ministry in that city, Paul several times received material support and help and assistance and therefore spiritual encouragement from the believers there in Philippi. 
Well, again, Paul was forced to flee. And Paul, therefore, goes on to Berea. And then from there to Athens and finally to Corinth, where he stays for a full 18 months before returning to Antioch. During his prolonged stay in Corinth, again, he receives assistance from this Philippian church. We have the stories given to us in Acts 16 through 18, and he refers to it also in 2 Corinthians and also here in Philippians, but in chapter 4. Eventually, maybe about a year later, Paul sets out on another trip the so-called third missionary journey, a major purpose of which was the raising of money, of funds, from among the various Gentile churches to help meet the needs of the poor and suffering Jewish church in Jerusalem and throughout Judea. Acts 18 tells us about this, Romans 15 as well. Now, there was a, a theological as well as practical reason Behind Paul's effort here, Paul's emphasis, you see, on the gospel of God's grace to Jew and Gentile alike entailed, it meant, accepting Christian Gentiles as such without requiring them to fulfill any Jewish ceremonies uh, as we have uh, told to us explicitly in Galatians chapter 5. Well, that approach of Paul raised more than a few eyebrows in some Jewish circles, created serious tensions, even among so-called moderate groups. It provoked furious opposition in other places. The stories are told in Acts 15 and Galatians 2. The Judaizers, as members of this last group are usually referred to, the Judaizers, they began a campaign of their own designed to lead Paul's converts to accept circumcision and other features of the law as essential features of their Christian confession. Paul is fiercely concerned about this false teaching and and calls it out throughout, especially his letter to the Galatians. Well, as Paul is traveling through Macedonia during his third journey, recounted in Acts 20, He would surely have warned these beloved Philippian Christians of the Judaizing threat. It had already created havoc in Galatia, the churches of that region. No doubt it would spread to Philippi. Undoubtedly, he has warned them of it. But that's the least of the Philippian problems at this time. In fact, because the Philippians were in financial straits, because they had already shown great generosity to Paul on several occasions, because Paul knows they actually now have needs themselves, Paul was not intending to request that the Philippian church also contribute to his project of raising funds for the Jerusalem church. But then the Philippians hear about it. And they insist on having a share in this project. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 that their poverty welled up in magnanimity. Their poverty only became an occasion to expose how generous they actually are. Well, Paul completes his project, eventually brings the offering to Jerusalem, Acts 21, 
And then those Jewish opponents managed to get him imprisoned for the effort. And so for two years, he awaits his fate in the town of Caesarea, Acts 21 to 24. During this time, the Philippians, of course, and now predictably, they want to help Paul. They feel a responsibility to help Paul. But the truth is that now their situation has only worsened. Their own difficult circumstances, along with their uncertainty about Paul's actual status, they, this prevents them from sending any assistance. Paul refers to this difficulty in Philippians 4.10. At last, the Paul the Apostle appeals to the emperor himself. And in the year 59 or 60, under guard, he sets sail for Rome for his trial, Acts 25. Word of that development, this turn of events, must have spread quickly throughout all those Gentile churches. And the Philippians hear about this. And yet again, they are determined to have a share in Paul's ministry, in his struggles. As soon as they know where he is, as soon as they know his circumstances, they are committed to being helpful. Well, within a few months of his arrival in Rome... The Philippians do now learn the details they need. They become aware of his worsened situation. And so they mount their efforts and they raise a large monetary gift, Philippians 4.18. Again, even though they are in fact needy themselves from their poverty, they prove their generosity, their magnanimity. But the Philippians themselves are truly undergoing serious difficulties of their own which doesn't prevent their generosity, but sure does inform it. There are opponents of the Christian community in Philippi causing great alarm within this congregation. That Judaizing threat is beginning to make itself felt in this congregation. There are also physical needs among the members of this congregation, producing anxiety among them, who have begun to wonder, it seems, whether their Christian faith was capable of sustaining them after all. Philippians 4, 6, and 19. All of those factors, it may be shocking to hear, but when congregations have difficulties of that sort, all those factors combine to create some disagreements in the congregation even some distrust. In fact, a poisonous spirit of self-seeking is threatening the health and well-being of the church as a whole. A poisonous spirit of self-seeking. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 of Philippians give us insight into this problem. The leadership of this church especially the persons of Iodia and Syntyche, have fallen into the sin of of dissension and rivalry. And the general health of the church has deteriorated considerably from the days when Paul founded it with Timothy and with Luke, and from the days he left it to continue his mission. Conscious of how much they are in need of spiritual help and of guidance, this congregation therefore dispatches one of their own church members. 
an evidently well-respected and well-known Christian man named Epaphroditus. They dispatch Epaphroditus with the gift that they have collected for Paul, and they send him from Philippi to Rome to get to Paul. And they send him with a letter, a letter that describes their situation and asks Paul for help and specifically appears to ask Paul to keep, here's the key to our letter, to keep Epaphroditus with him and send their beloved Timothy, who again had a special role in their founding, send Timothy back to them to help them out. You see, Timothy has been with Paul all this time, serving his needs, helping Paul out. He enjoys some, li- some liberty of, of movement, some mobility. Paul does not. Paul is, in fact, the one in prison. Timothy has been there to serve him with communications, with practical support, other forms of support uh, and uh, assistance. And they have a- they're asking, keep Epaphroditus with you. We're sending him to you. We'll trade Epaphroditus for Timothy. You send Timothy back to us, um, and he will be able to help us with our problems. Well, on the way to Rome, with this letter, with this update, with this gift from the Philippians to Paul, and with the requests that they have of him, on the way to Rome, Epaphroditus, in fact, falls gravely ill and was unable to fulfill his mission speedily. Sometime on his way, a report of this Delay and setback reaches Philippi, apparently causing great consternation. Oh dear, we sent Epaphroditus with all this money and with this letter of our great need. We need Timothy sent back. We need Paul's help by sending Timothy. Paul can't come. He's in prison. We need Timothy. Our hopes are bound up to Epaphroditus getting to Paul, giving this gift and making this request. Uh, And now we're hearing he's doing very poorly. He's fallen ill on the way Eventually, however, God spares Epaphroditus' life. But at risk of his own life, Epaphroditus doesn't turn around and go back home to Philippi. He continues on to Rome anyway. He almost dies, but instead of going back home, calling it a day or more, he presses on in the commission he's been given continues all the way to Rome. By the time Epaphroditus reaches Rome, Paul has been in prison now for about a year. Well, the the gift that he brings from the Philippians, the offering of the Philippians, as Paul calls it, uh, was therefore truly a God-given blessing to Paul. And the apostle was, as he says, at a loss how to express his thanks to a church that is given so sacrificially and repeatedly to look after him and make sure his ministry happens. Well, of course, with Epaphroditus comes the news of the problems in Philippi at this church, which require immediate attention. But, and here is the problem behind our passage. Their request that Timothy be sent to them could not be granted. At least not immediately. They have immediate needs and they see Timothy as a solution. 
And he cannot send Timothy back to them immediately. More and more people had deserted Paul by this point. And Timothy alone, Paul says in chapter 2, 19 to 30, Timothy alone could minister to him in this dark hour. Well, aware that the Philippians are going to be deeply, deeply disappointed, grieved in fact, when they stare out their windows and finally see the man coming over the hills in their direction from Rome to Philippi and then realize that's not Timothy. That's Epaphroditus again. Did he not make it to Rome? Did he go to Rome and just wasn't successful? Didn't get our message across, our request? That's not Timothy coming back. That's, that's Epaphroditus, the man we sent away. Aware that they are going to be deeply disappointed to see Epaphroditus rather than Timothy return, Paul is now faced with a very serious pastoral challenge. How is he going to cushion this inevitable disappointment? Maybe Epaphroditus is now going to become the object of undeserved criticism. How can he convey, on the one hand, in this letter he is sending back with Epaphroditus to the Philippians, the letter we call Philippians, how is he going to convey to them his great joy and gratitude for their continual participation in his ministry while at the same time doing what he has to do as a pastor. He's going to have to rebuke them unambiguously for their grave lapse in sanctification that has brought about this rivalry, this contentiousness, this self-serving, self-seeking attitude threatening to destroy the church as a whole. How is he going to say, thank you so much for your generous gift. You have kept me going. And how dare you? At the same time. And, and with a view to Epaphroditus' own vulnerability of becoming the object of undeserved criticism. How to help them in this great hour of need. Which brings us to our few verses. These are the reasons why Paul commends Epaphroditus to the Philippians. When you read these words in light of that backstory of what's going on, when Paul sends this letter back to them and it's Epaphroditus bringing it and not Timothy, when you account for these circumstances, there are things Paul says here that pop out at us. Screaming that they not be overlooked. These words of commendation of Epaphroditus are more than Paul saying, isn't he a nice guy? This is an apologetic argument on his part. Was Epaphroditus going to be seen by the church as a kind of consolation prize? Sent simply because Timothy, whom the Philippians really wanted and fully expected, had to stay with Paul? Here's the the issue. It's not merely that Timothy is needed by Paul. The way Paul now speaks to the Philippians, he also wants to say Epaphroditus is needed by the Philippians. More even than Timothy is. 
Again, Epaphroditus is not what the church wants. Epaphroditus is not what the church thinks it needs. But Paul will say Epaphroditus is in fact what you need, even though he is not who you want. He is who you need, even though he is not who you want. Something the Lord often has to tell us. And Paul has to tell the Philippians. Now, how is it that Epaphroditus is what this church needs? Well, Epaphroditus was not known the way Timothy was. He had no claim, like others did, Timothy included, to special time with the great apostle Paul on his missionary journeys, receiving his kind of private seminary instruction, his teaching from the apostle Paul. He has no special origin story with the Philippian congregation themselves, the way Timothy did, who was there at their founding and was precious to them and beloved by them at the very beginning, and on and on we could go. In other words, this is Epaphroditus, not Timothy, a man who, unlike Timothy, if you will, was not a conference personality. He hadn't written any theology books. He was not a well-known leader of a parachurch organization. He didn't have his own podcast and radio show. In fact, he seems to have been a simply faithful but largely anonymous man known and respected by the Philippian Christians, yes, but never looked to by them as a resource for their great need. Beyond that, he is useful, he has utility as someone who can bring the letter to Paul, bring our gift, get our message to him so Timothy can come back. Beyond that apparent utility for Epaphroditus, the Philippians seem to have no eye for how this man could actually have been what they really needed, and he was there all along. Which is exactly what Paul is now going to tell them. Paul gently rebukes the Philippians by telling them the truth about Epaphroditus, about his real value to them. In his relatively quiet and anonymous life, and especially in his service to them in love, Paul describes Epaphroditus in such a way that the Philippians are supposed to be able to recognize, and you and I as well, to recognize in these words the very form and contours of Christ himself. And this is what Paul is teaching the church. You need to get to the point, he is saying, where your reasons for extending honor are not the world's, are not issues of celebrity, prestige, wealth, power, and the like. But what you honor is where you see Christ on display in people. So Paul will now tell us and the Philippians how Christ is put on display in Epaphroditus' loving service to them. And in doing so, we'll say, don't you see? What you needed had been there all along. We hear this message from Paul when we notice how he describes Epaphroditus' love for the Philippian church using the very language and accenting the very features that remind us of what he has just said immediately before this 
of Christ himself in chapter 2. To hear this, note first of all Epaphroditus' love for his Philippian brethren. In verse 26 of our passage, For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Verse 26 is focusing our attention and the Philippians on the deep emotional attachment between Epaphroditus and this Philippian congregation. A point that becomes stressed again even more in verse 28. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. Paul uses two forceful expressions in describing Epaphroditus' emotions with respect to the Philippians. Similarly, in 2 Corinthians 5 and 9 as well. Uh, And he uses this language to long for. Philippians longs for them. Uh, He uses this language which he had used to describe his own affection for the Philippians in chapter 1-8, that he longs for them. At the very least, he's saying, all right, in Epaphroditus, you have the same affection for you you think you have for me for you. But then he goes on to say Epaphroditus's longings were accompanied by mental distress with respect to the Philippians. Now, that's a striking thing for him to say because this is a condition that Paul describes by using a very infrequent and very vivid word for it. It's the word that only ever occurs in the New Testament in the way the Gospels tell us the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark 14, and they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he says to his disciples, Jesus does, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. That kind of distress, Paul attributes to Epaphroditus to his knowledge that Philippians have heard about his illness and will be concerned about him. He may have been worried that they're going to try to send him some help, and then those helpers will now be vulnerable and at risk as well. Whatever it is, it seems clear that Epaphroditus' personal need, his sense of responsibility uh, to return, was serious. And, And providentially, this set of circumstances dovetails with Paul's own need to keep Timothy at his side. In his own commendation, Paul confirms that reports about Epaphroditus' illness were correct. No, Philippians, there was no exaggeration of his condition. No, just because he's back with you now, that doesn't mean he wasn't that badly, doing that poorly. No, Paul says, it was more dangerous than you probably realized. He nearly died, but he says, he nearly died in service of you. Nearly died. Now that sounds familiar, doesn't it? In other words, his loving service to his brethren was such that it was, shall we say it, with a view to what Paul said is immediately before this in Philippians 2, that it was nearly or almost to the point of death. 
Even death on the road to service in Epaphroditus' case. Now, Paul doesn't want the Philippians to miss this. He says it three different times. Verses 27 and 30, that he was close to death, that he came near to death, that he risked his life. You can hardly miss the impression. Paul is wanting to prevent a possible misunderstanding that when the Philippians see not Timothy, whom they are expecting, but Epaphroditus, and they see him safe and sound, they're going to think, did we grieve in vain over your welfare, over your health? Were you unable to fulfill the mission? Was this whole project just a fiasco? Absolutely not. Paul's point is that even despite being near to death, he did not turn back. He presses on in loving service to the church. Now, maybe, in fact, his condition had deteriorated so terribly by the time he actually got to Paul in Rome. That as some people, some scholars suggest, when he gets to Paul in Rome, his life still hangs in the balance for some time. And Paul is sitting there watching this man, putting the pieces together of what's happened. Praying, as Paul suggests he has been, praying that God would spare not only Epaphroditus, but spare Paul the grief of of Epaphroditus' death in this context. Then Epaphroditus is able to recover, regain his strength, proves finally to be okay, okay even to return to Philippi. Paul, who was already bearing heavy burdens, must have anguished over the possibility that Epaphroditus' work of mercy might turn into yet another source of grief, verse 27. But God shows himself merciful, he says, and now the apostle with joy will exalt Epaphroditus. He will exalt Epaphroditus before the eyes of the Philippians by saying, verse 30, he did what he did for the work of Christ. And therefore, I want you to know, Philippians, he was not only a brother to me as he is to you, he is my co-worker and fellow soldier, verse 25. Uh, Something that does not necessarily refer to any previous association, but shows just how highly Paul regards Epaphroditus' faithfulness in fulfilling this mission. A mission that he will call, in verse 30, a priestly service. The word for liturgy, a priestly service. And Paul wants to make sure that those uh, Philippians Give to Epaphroditus the honor that he deserves. Verse 29. Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Honor such men. Honor men like this. Which means don't only honor him. Now we're hearing something that we need to take away with us. Honor men like that. Like what? It's interesting that in 1 Corinthians 16, 17 and 18, where Paul exhorts the Corinthians to honor or to acknowledge, to regard, to show appreciation for three representatives from the church at Corinth, who when they visited him made possible what the church set out to do, he says to them, regard, show honor, to those men. 
I rejoice, he says, at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people, Paul says there. What kind of people? Well, what he says about Epaphroditus gives us our key. People in whose largely anonymous, non-celebrity, faithful, humble service put on display the form and contours of Christ himself. Now, we've referred to it a few times. Let's now hear what Paul had just said a little before this, these very words, about the form and contours of the Christ, his service to his church. Chapter 2, starting in verse 5, you know the words. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count that equality with God something to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And right after saying that, he says, now I'm sending Epaphroditus back to you. Let me tell you about him. And what he says is basically the same thing on how that Christ is put on display in Epaphroditus' extensive service in love for the Philippian church. Why is that so important for Paul to mention? Well, what do these Philippians need? They need help with a problem of rivalry, a problem of self-seeking and self-serving. They lack humility. They lack the grace of service where they lose all things for the sake of Christ's people. They need those graces in a context of rivalry, dissension, and self-promotion. And right there among them, sitting next to them in the pews, was a resource for that very need if they only had eyes to see it. Epaphroditus is not what they wanted. And yet Paul is saying, and he is who you need. He is who you needed. Because in his service to you, he has put the Christ that you confess on display precisely in the terms you need it now. It's as though Paul is saying, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, and put on display in Epaphroditus, who did not count his equality with the rest of you something to hold on to and take away with him, but instead emptied himself by taking the path of a servant and humbling himself by serving you to the point of almost dying on the way to see me. 
just because he loved you. Even to death, he was willing to go for your sake and love. And for that reason, I am exalting him before you. I am saying his, singing his praises in front of you. I want you to know this is a man you should honor. I am honoring him. I'm calling you to do the same. But you have not done so because you sent him away thinking you needed this other thing. In fact, you had what you needed. Later, in chapter 4, we have the other, only other mention of Epaphroditus, when Paul will go on to say this. Yet, verse 14, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And then he says words you know well. And my God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. But now we understand what Paul actually means when he says that. And through such brothers and sisters in Christ, quietly faithful in your midst, through people like this, my God will supply what you need. Paul has told the Philippians, God has heard your prayer. He has provided for you. You had what you needed among you already. But you were looking for something else. And you missed his provision. Now, of course, there's another part of the picture here, isn't there? Isn't there a summons here to be Epaphroditus' ourselves? To those among and around us who need encouragement, strength, and wisdom, and help? If the Lord is not ordinarily providing for the regular needs of his people, and he never says he would, in the form of celebrity pastors and preachers, our favorite radio personalities, conference personalities, theology professors, book writers, book authors, and the like, as, as great as those blessings are through such servants, but does instead care for his people in the mundane, in the ordinary, in the, in the, in the person, the brother and the sister to your left and to your right, in whose lives he has been working over years to cultivate wisdom in that brother and in that sister over many years of quiet faithfulness, who is therefore supposed to be seen by each of us as a potential source of wisdom for me. Then to what extent has the Lord been working in your life and in mine? That he has been cultivating wisdom in you so that you can be a resource of wisdom for your brother and for your sister. And before we look outside the doors for the help the Lord gives his people. Can you now think of potential Epaphroditus's in your midst? Especially older saints who have a track record of service to the Lord, humility, not self-seeking, but Christ-seeking service and faithfulness 
in whatever vocation, in whatever form of life, whether they ever taught a Sunday school class or not, whether they ever read a prayer in public, whether they ever did the kinds of things we associate with the official representatives of God's wisdom for his people, whose ministry we need and we are grateful for. But can you think of any potential Epaphroditus in your midst who may be a resource for wisdom and spiritual help and grace that you are inclined instead to look for in other places? Are we praying ourselves and receiving the word and sacrament ourselves and loving brothers and sisters in Christ in a costly way ourselves, walking in humility ourselves and oriented to the welfare of the body ourselves in such a way that we are becoming potential future Epaphroditus ourselves in service to others around us or the younger boys and girls of this congregation who years from now will need us to have persevered in grace by then to be the source of wisdom they need then you see the kind of faithfulness of Epaphroditus the kind of example that he was is not something you can flip a switch on when the time comes this was a man in whose heart God had been at work for a long time and he was therefore prepared to be the kind of man who is ready to give his life for the church. You don't flip a switch on that. Faithfulness doesn't happen quickly. Not this kind. Wisdom is not instant. Are we embracing and seizing upon the means of God's grace in such a way that we take a long view on how we might be of service to him and to others down the road? That's a very different way of thinking, isn't it? From the immediacy of our culture. The microwave mentality of how God meets my needs. But Paul is telling us this is the ordinary way God blesses his people. My God will supply your need through such ordinary ways according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now, of course, friends, the glory of the gospel in Philippians 2 is not Epaphroditus any more than it is your faithful brother and sister in Christ here. It is the Christ put on display in such faithfulness. It is the Christ whose story as the God-man who in love for his church did indeed go all the way in service to the point of death on a cross and was raised and exalted by his Father and given the name above every name, even Epaphroditus' name. It is that Christ who is the gospel. But friends, what I'm asking us to account for today is the way that the blessings of that gospel unique to Christ, are enjoyed by his body as the life of his body proves to be an ecosystem not of self-service and not of celebrity, but the glorious anonymity of the mundane of self-sacrifice and the pursuit of wisdom in humility before the Lord.
May he make his name great among us by making our name small to the extent his name must be great. And may we rejoice at opportunities to give up those things the Lord calls us to give up, even in reputation, prestige, and resources, if it is in service to the long-term good of his church and the glory of his name. And when you discover an Epaphroditus among you, and when you're teaching your little ones what kind of people to admire in the world, honor such people. Honor this kind of man, this kind of woman. And this is why Paul makes such a big deal of it. We are inclined to honor other kinds of people. May we not only honor such men and women, May we become, by God's grace, to his glory, honorable ourselves. Let us pray. O Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ways you have blessed your church with the resources needed for perseverance in faith and in godliness. We thank you for how you have provided us, even here at this church, in various seasoned saints to our left and to our right, resources for our own growth and wisdom. We thank you for them and pray that you would lead us by your grace to honor such men and women. Even as we ask for the grace to become honorable in these ways ourselves and to take the long view on how we might be of service to our brothers and sisters in Christ and ultimately to the glory of our Savior by whose name we have been called. For it is our heart's desire and prayer beyond all else that we would be to the praise of the glory of the one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who loves and has loved his church in exactly this way. May we praise him and honor him as by his grace we pursue honorability. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us, friends, take a few moments now to reflect on the word of God read and preached before hearing the Lord's parting blessing. Brothers and sisters in Christ, hear now the parting blessing, the benediction of our Lord. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.